Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. So what are we talking about this morning? What's the title of the message? Generosity. Should all Christians be generous? Absolutely, especially so. So I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? He's referring to the temple in Jerusalem. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You might want to underline that passage. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Again, a second time, give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be a little. What you brought, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine, the oil and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. How many like to go out to eat every now and again? Yeah. It's a nice pleasure every now and again, right? To go out and have a nice meal. And uh, you get good service when you get really nice service. The server's there and attending to you, making sure your water's filled, food's good, proper temperature, any problems at all. They're just very attending to you. At the conclusion of the meal, you're expected to do what? Give a gratuity is an expression of your appreciation for their good service. Um, what is a, what's the current gratuity these days? 20%. That's, that's what it is. I'm, I'm hearing back from people that it's up to 25% now. You know, restaurants, they, they on, your, on the bottom of your, uh, your ticket, they give you the suggested percentages. A couple of people told me this weekend it's up to 25%. I said, wow. It's good Julie and I don't want to go out and eat. So we, we understand the principle of gratuities and tipping and uh, just expressions of gratitude for uh, the kindness and service uh, that is provided to us on these special occasions. But when we suggest a minimum of 10% to God, some people have a hard time groan and moan and whine and argue. Trust me, I've heard all the arguments, believe me, in 43 years. What's the point? People, many people, try to ignore, try to laugh away, laugh off any financial problems they may be having act like everything's okay, 
truth is, there's nothing funny about financial problems and financial stress. We've been talking about that for the past couple weeks. Someone once, I think, wisely said, too often we spend money we don't have to buy things we don't need from people we don't know to impress people we don't like. <laughs> Someone else once said, when our outgo exceeds our income, then our upkeep will become our downfall. I thought that was very insightful. So there's nothing fun about living with financial pressure, financial stress, nothing enjoyable about living with bills, with living with burdens, living with the bondage of debt. We talked about debt last time. And a number of people had questions. What about, what about a mortgage on a house? You have, that's a secured debt. You have equity to offset that. We're talking about unsecured debt. We're talking about credit card debt. We're talking about student debt. People run up incredible amounts of student debt. So there's all manner of debt that we've been talking about last time. We're not talking about uh, a home mortgage. So it's important again for us to know, does God mean for us to be free from anxiety and worry and, and those kinds of things? Absolutely. But we know also that under the burden of debt and financial problems, financial stress, uh, things weigh on you and you can lose sleep. So how do we solve these financial problems? Well, before we can solve them, we need to find out something. And the thing we need to find out is who's actually behind the financial problems that we're experiencing? Who's responsible for the mess that we find ourselves in, be it relational, be it financial, be it personal, be it spiritual? Who's behind it? Who do you, who do you think? Well, first of all, it's not, not our husband, not our wives. Do you think the devil wants us to be in bondage? Absolutely, absolutely. Every way, and there's lots of bondage traps, aren't there? And is money important to us? Is it, is it, is it an important issue for life? Yeah, and so that's an area that he wants us to be in bondage so that we're immobilized and there's no real joy and freedom to our life. Um, Herminda shared with me earlier that uh, she, she was determined a while back when she heard me talking about this, she was determined to get out of debt and she's paid off all her debt. And so she was telling me, she says, I'm, I'm debt free. I have, and God has just blessed my life and I have money to give away. Now don't line up behind her. <laughs> But the point is, she gets it. And there's no financial stress on her life whatsoever. And I'm just so thrilled uh, by her testimony. So Satan, Satan wants us to be in bondage. But not even Satan is behind our financial problems. Guess who is? It's God. God is behind them. Here's the irony of it all. You and I can get out of financial problems anytime we want. Just like last week, I said you can get out of debt anytime you want. You just have to what? Really want to and be willing to do things God's way. And forever telling people, you want God to bless your life, then do things his way. It's very simple. Don't argue. Don't kick against the goads. Don't think you know better. Acknowledge him in all of your ways. He'll make your path straight. Isn't that good news? Fabulous, fabulous. You and I have the power, we have the capacity to choose to have a life that is drastically different from the life that other people may be living. Does God mean for us as believers to be a light to unbelievers? Just by how we live our life, just by the fruit of our life. People cut around us, we don't use bad language, we don't, we don't dance the hoochie-coo, we don't, you know, all that stuff that that the world does. And people take note. They look at our life. And they may laugh and mock, but when you say a Christian, you see, you say, I are a Christian, they're going to watch you, aren't they? And they're going to watch you to see you slip up. But they're going to see the fruit of your life. And at some point in their life, when there's a need, they're going to come and say, what is it? Help me. I'm watching you. You are different. This is what God, God's working in our life. I told my son years ago, 
If you'll always do what others won't, you'll always get what others don't. That's true for every aspect of our life, in particular finances. If you'll make the right choices in your life, do what other people are not willing to do. If you'll be willing to follow God, trust him when it comes to your finances, you'll get in your life what other people will never, ever experience. God is faithful. He's really, he's really there. This is all the truth. I hope you realize that. The tragedy is, more often than not, financial problems come into our lives. They are merely the result of us not doing what God wants, not following him, and not living according to his design. Haggai, we read about God's people, Israel, the, the Israelites, they were experiencing a number of problems, and the problems were a direct result of their very simply ignoring God. Ignoring God, specifically ignoring the things of God, and even worse, the house of God, the temple in Jerusalem. They were putting their own desires first and ignoring him. Now, I know none of you do that. That's a good thing. This message is designed to equip you so you can help other people. Amen? Look with me back at verses 1 and 2. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So the word of the Lord is coming to the leaders there in Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Now keep that in mind. The people have made a decision. It's not time to do anything for God yet. Well, I'm not, I'm not quite ready. I'm not quite ready. I'm not quite ready. Whether it's being baptized, whether it's giving back to him, whether it's serving him, whether it's functioning in your gifting, whatever it is that God has provided you with and, and called you to, well, I'm not quite ready. My gosh. Then the word of the Lord came through Haggai again, verses 3 through 5. Is that a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Give careful thought to your ways. You planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Now look, look what's about to happen? The financial problems for the Jews, for the Israelites, are going to start piling up. Look at verse 6. Again, you planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with what? Holes in it. They're like little gerbils in a cage going round and round in a circle. It doesn't matter what they do. Nothing seems to change. They work harder. They plant more seed. They do more stuff. Yet it seems as if they have nothing and aren't getting anywhere. Something's going on here. Would you agree? Look with me again at verses 7 and 8. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Now he says this the second time. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains, bring down the timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. God says, in fact, build me a house. Build me a house. Does he say the same thing to us? Build me a house? What do you think? Huh? Yeah, what's, what's the house of God now? Where's the temple of God now? We are the church. It's not a building. It's the people. He says, what? Go out, go out and tell people. Tell people the good news. Let's build the church. 
is build the church. So much of the time, sadly, we are not unlike the Israelites. We're busy with our own issues. The kingdom of God is not always first in our life. God's purposes are not always first. Our, our agenda, our agenda. Look at verse 9 with me. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Oh, my gosh. They worked hard. They strategized well. They planned carefully. They said, we're going to be all right. We're going to have a great harvest. Things are going to be great. Everything's going to be wonderful. But in verse 9, God says what? What you brought home, I blew away. Is God sovereign? Can he do whatever he wants? Absolutely. Is he being mean? Have you ever gone home and look at your checkbook balance, if you even have a checkbook anymore? Your account balances. Have you ever said this? Where has all the money gone? Where has it gone? The Bible says that money has wings. It can fly away. Proverbs 23.5 says, cast but a glance at riches, or more literally, when you set your eyes on them, and they're gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Where did, where did it all go? I had a bunch of money here, and it's gone. Verse 4 of Proverbs 23 says, don't wear yourself out to get riches. A lot of people are wearing themselves out. They're committed wholly. That's all they do is work, 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 work. Why? Because that's where they're going to get the money. Look back at verse 9 of Haggai. Because of my house, which remains a ruin, well, each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, verses 10 and 11, therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I call for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands. Is that an extensive drought, do you think? I mean, everything. He's listed everything there. God says, you have all, your, your, all your priorities are messed up. You put yourself first, not me. And when you put yourself first, not me, I shut it down. I read someplace where it says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all this stuff will be added to you. And not the reverse. We're very prone, as still yet fallen human beings, we're very prone to put ourselves first, to not trust in God, and to try to make everything work ourselves. Proverbs again says, don't lean on your own understanding. Beloved, God has the power to shut things down. And when you and I get our priorities out of order, we put other things in ourselves first before him, he can and very often will shut us right down. Why? Is God mean? What do you think? Is God mean? Is he just crabby? We have a crabby God? No. What's he trying to do? Why, why these negative effects? May I suggest he's simply doing it to get our attention. Wake up. He says twice what? Consider your ways. He wants our attention. Every time you and I put ourselves first and God lasts, we're headed for trouble. That's why we gather together to encourage one another, to remind one another, said, oh, yes. When you're out there on your own, chances are you're going to be distracted. And particularly financial problems. Money is a necessary thing in our life, is it not? We, we do everything we can to get it. We do everything we can to keep it. We do everything we can to not lose it. 
Money is important. And God knows this. And so this is an area in our life where he'll certainly have his way. They are financial problems are, are just like the pain sensors in our physical body. Our pain sensors are given to keep us from destroying our body. If you don't have pain sensors in your hand, you put your hand on a hot stove, what's going to happen? You're going to burn it up. Like warning lights on the dashboard of your car. Pay attention to the warning lights, right? There's all these things in life that are given to signal us so that we will, what, pay attention to what is going on. Warning lights, pain sensors, even financial problems are all designed to get our attention, help us avoid unnecessary trouble. What makes leprosy such an insidious disease is that it destroys, in effect, the body's pain sensors so you can literally burn your hand and not even feel it. One of the deadliest financial diseases people get is credit. Debt, we talked about last time. What leprosy is to the human body, I submit to you, credit is to our finances. Credit tells us and tells us, oh, everything is okay, no matter what we do. I'm <laughs> People are fond to come and tell me, I have a great credit score. I don't care. My question is, are you debt-free? Are you paying off your debts? I tell you, there's nothing, no feeling like if you own a house, you're paying a mortgage, and, and a lot of you already know this, there's no feeling like paying that mortgage off. You own that house out, outright. Isn't that great? So I believe that financial problems and, and, and struggles are God's way of saying, uh, you're not on the right path. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, God says, I discipline those I love. I discipline those I love. God's not about to let us walk in rebellion and disobedience and get away with it. He's very creative. How many know that God's very, very creative? He has ways we never would ever think of of shutting us down to get our attention and amongst those ways are giving us financial problems. Now turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. Now remember Haggai, in Haggai, God is the one behind the problems. In Malachi chapter 3, God is the one behind the blessings. Read with me chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. I, the Lord, do not change. Isn't that wonderful? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can count on him. I do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. In other words, God says, I keep my promises. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing you'll not have enough room for it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruits, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Amen to that. How many have taken God's word and tested him and found that he's been faithful? <laughs> yeah, uh, we just go... God, you've opened doors that I could never open. You've been creative and providing for me in ways that I would never, ever predict. Amen. Test me, he says. No place else in the Bible does it say, test me. God is in control. We've already talked about his sovereignty, have we not? Yes. 
He's either the one behind our financial problems or the one behind our blessings. And guess who chooses which one he's going to be in our lives? We do. We make that choice. Now, I, I know, I get this all the time, someone is going to doubtfully object and say to me, well, that's the Old Testament. We're New Testament people. This doesn't apply to us. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us, learn from those people. Look back. Don't make the same mistakes they did. Don't repeat their failures. You can't just set the Old Testament aside, say it's not relevant today because we're New Testament people. No, the whole Bible is relevant. Is tithing just an Old Testament concept and as New, pe New Testament people, we don't have to tithe? Well, where does the, where does the New Testament teach tithing? Eh, let's look. But before we do, let me ask this question. There are over 500 prophecies in the Old Testament about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Should we discard those and ignore those? No, of course not. Do we say that those 500 plus prophecies about Christ's second coming are invalid because they're the Old Testament? We're New Testament believers? No, we long for those. The Old Testament and the New Testament are hand in hand. When you read your Old Testament, who do you look for? You look for Jesus. He's pictured again and again and again and again. He is the fulfillment of all of those prophecies. And when you discover him and you, and you say, Lord, show me, show me Jesus in this passage. And at the beginning of the year, if you're, if you're doing the, a reading through the Bible in a year, uh, you, you know, you, you're looking for him. The Old Testament contains principles and truths that are still relevant to us today. Now, one other thing that's very important for us to realize, the devil, does he battle us? Yeah, the Bible tells us we have an adversary. We have an adversary called the devil. And the devil battles people more over two things than anything else. Baptism and tithing. Why does he battle over those two things? Because both are starting points in our walk with Jesus. When you become a Christian, should you be baptized? Yes, yes. Jesus commands us to be baptized. It's our public testimony. It's our standing up and saying, I identify with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. I am a Christian. I am one with Christ. Amen. Why would anybody not want to be baptized? But the devil battles people. Well, I don't know. I'm not ready yet. Like it's optional. <laughs> it's not optional. If you're a Christian and you're not baptized, you need to get baptized. You need to call Pastor Andrew, Pastor Mike, and say, I want to be baptized. We baptized by immersion, by the way, if you didn't know that. We have a tank right under, under here. And when Michael and Andrew baptize, they hold you down to the last bubble. <laughs> I don't do that. <laughs> I mean, if the, if, if the devil can mess people up at baptism, and that's the beginning, and they, he can keep them from obeying what God has said they're to do. And you live your whole life walking in disobedience. It's just that simple. And the devil then wins. He's got, he's got a foothold in your life, and you can't do anything about it. You can curse the devil all you want. You can command the devil to leave all you want. You gave him the foothold. The only way to release it is what? Get baptized. Repent. Amen? Amen. Then comes the tithing issue. Tithing is elementary. 
It's elementary. And if you didn't realize this, tithing was something that was well known in the ancient Near East. Even the pagans tithe to their pagan gods. Tithing is absolutely elementary. It is simply, like baptism, a starting point. It's a starting point. It's not the end point. We're called to be what? Sacrificial givers, are we not? Did God give sacrificially? Did God just kind of look around heaven and say, mm, what do I have? Do I have an old angel I don't need? <laughs> no. He gave his very best. The Hallmark Card Company. You know, all know their motto, right? When you care enough, you send the very best. You send the very best. We make a statement. If the devil can hook you by getting you not to tithe, and he can get you to disobey God in that area of your life, then he can rob you of all the blessings that God wants to pour into your life. Well, I don't know about tithing. Okay. Once the devil gets, gets you to disobey God in one area of your life, it's that much easier for him to get you to disobey God in other areas of your life. Once you don't trust him, you're going to find yourself not trusting another area, another area. It's a dynamic, it's a spiritual dynamic that is progressive. Once you learn to trust him and you learn how to walk in faith and obey him, man, your life begins to take off. Man, but I don't know about that. Try it. You have nothing to lose. Remember, baptism and tithing are the beginning points. If you don't start well, how vulnerable then are you in the race? We've all seen races where when one racer stumbles out of the starting gates or uh, even a horse race, when the horses stumble out of the starting gate and, and they're lost, they've lost the race. It all has to do with the start. How are we starting? Tithing really began back in, in the book of Genesis in chapter four with Cain and Abel. How many remember Cain and Abel? What an account. They were supposed to bring the first fruits of their labor to God as an offering. God had evidently told them, the best of what you have belongs to me, bring it to me. The best of what you have, the first fruits. Deuteronomy chapter 26, Leviticus chapter 27. God says a, a, a general principle, a tithe of everything belongs to the Lord. Now, Abel was a keeper of flocks, and Cain was a keeper of uh, 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 crops, okay? So, Abel, we're told, brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. Presumably, God had told them when, how, and what they're to bring as an offering. It's not necessarily recorded verbally in the passage in Genesis, but you have to understand, read between the lines, God had already talked to them about it. If you go back to Adam and Eve, God shed blood to cover Adam and Eve in skins to cover over their shame, cover over their sin. And so they were well acquainted with the whole idea of the, of the principle that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God is worshiped. And so Abel brings the first things of his flock to God. But for Cain, for his offering, God had no regard. Why, what did Cain bring that Abel didn't? What did Cain bring that he should have? What did he bring that he shouldn't have brought? He leaned on his own understanding. He brought his, the, the, the fruits of his labor in terms of crops. But God didn't say bring crops. Bring an animal. Bring the first fruits of this crop. Cain should have gone to his brother and said, hey, uh, I know I'm supposed to bring this sacrifice. 
can I buy a, a, a sheep from you, a lamb from you, a goat, whatever. He doesn't do it. In his own pride, he makes the offering according to his perspective. God, you need to accept what I'm doing. Ooh, ooh, be careful about that. And then what happens after the offerings are made? What happens? You remember? Cain got mad. Who did he get mad at? His brother Abel. And what does he do to Abel? He kills him. He kills him. He kills his brother. The very first murder in all of human history is over an offering. And people are still struggling over offerings and giving to God. Abraham. Abraham tithed to the Lord. You read about it again in Genesis chapter 14. Long before the Mosaic law commanded it, Abraham, before he was called by God, he was an uncircumcised, idolatrous Gentile. He was well acquainted with the customs of the land. He knew the principle of tithing. So now God calls him, and in the account, he rescues his nephew Lot, takes takes captive some, some goods from these captured kings, the defeated kings. He meets a man by the name of Melchizedek, who presumably is the Lord himself, king of Salem, and he gives him a tenth of all. How did he know to do that? How did he know to do that? Except this was customary. In Genesis chapter 28, Jacob, Jacob promised Promise God, if you bless me, I'll give you a tenth of everything I'll ever receive. There was no quibbling. I'll give you a tenth. You bless me, I'll give you a tenth. He understood that custom, that principle. If you go to Matthew's Gospel in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus raises the standard. He says that our righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He says to the teachers of the law, he says to the Pharisees, you do well to tithe, but you're ignoring the weightier issues of the law. Mercy, justice, compassion. So he commends their tithing, but they're missing it out on the other end. Jesus doesn't say you don't have to do it. Then he says to us, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Let me show you a contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God required what kind of sacrifices? Animal sacrifices. Animal sacrifices. But in the New Testament, what kind of sacrifices does he require? Living sacrifices. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He doesn't tell us, bring a dead animal, put it on the altar, we'll burn it up. He says, you bring your life, put it on the altar. The problem with a living sacrifice is that as soon as you get it on the altar, guess what? It wants to wiggle off. We're offering our bodies. The figure of speech by metonymy means everything we are, everything we have. Lord, I, I'm yours. Use me. Your will be done. Whatever you, you give me, Lord, I want to use for your glory. Living sacrifice. Living what? Sacrifice. Living. Sacrifice. One more time. Living. Sacrifice. Okay, that's not sitting well with some, I guess. They're still sacrifices. They're just not dead animal sacrifices. Now, we talked about the first couple of weeks, we talked about the two steps on the road to faithful stewardship have to do with our attitude. How many remember that? What's my attitude? What's my attitude about God? What's my attitude about his sovereignty? What's my attitude about debt? We talked about those. And now I'm talking to you about our attitude toward generous giving or more particularly the centrality of the tithe. The single greatest thing that you can do to turn your finances around is to make the choice to start tithing, trusting God, 
it will change your life. Now, let me just share with you some simple principles. Number one, as God says, the tithe belongs to him, not to us. Leviticus chapter 27, a tithe of everything belongs to the Lord. Malachi, we just read, God says, bring the tithe to me, to my storehouse. Joshua chapter 7, how many remember Joshua? Moses had led the people out through the wilderness for 40 years from Egypt, right? Moses dies off. Joshua is the next leader to take on. And he's, he, he crosses over the Jordan, leads the people over the Jordan River to take uh, captive the promised land. What's the very first city they must take captive? Jericho. The very first city is Jericho. You recall that. Jericho is the city and all that it contained, God says, belongs to me. Don't take any spoils for yourself. Jericho, in effect, was a tithe of the land. It's the first fruits of the promised land. And so God says, don't take anything. However, one person took some stuff for himself. Who was that? Anybody remember? I remember my aching back. Aching. That's right. He took some stuff and in effect robbed God and paid a horrible price. You can read about it in Joshua chapter 7. Secondly, we're to bring, 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 bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Now, God, God didn't know about electronic giving. Do you know that, right? Why does he want us to bring it? He wants to make sure we're in his house. Worship him together. Listen to his word. Encourage one another. Strengthen one another. Bless one another. Pray for one another. We're meant to assemble together. Uh, the writer of the Hebrews says, uh, don't, don't forsake the assembling together as is the habit of some. And all the more as you see the day approaching. We need each other. Would you agree? Yes. So we bring it. And when do we bring it? Well, Paul tells us there should be a regularity to our giving. First Corinthians chapter 16 says the first day of the week. So some regularity. Not sporadic. Not once in a while. It's not when I think about it. I've talked to a number of people these past couple of weeks who've said to me, confessed to me, they said, you know what, I, I've been really irregular, I've been paying attention, I've not been giving, not been tithing, but I'm trying to catch up. I said, great, you know what the Bible says about that? You got to add 20% interest. That's right. So the first day of the week. And then we're to bring the tithe into the storehouse. That's a place where we're cared for and fed. You don't eat at Burger King and say, I appreciate the food, but I'm going to go to Taco Bell and give them my money. Right? We're to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse where we're fed, where we're cared for. Thirdly, we're to bring the whole tithe, all 10%. Sometimes we make excuses for people. We say, well, you know, I, I know it's difficult. I know you're in very limited income, and I know you got bills and problems. Uh, do whatever you can. Maybe you can just work up to it. God doesn't say work on it. God doesn't say pray about it. God doesn't say see if somehow you can fit into your budget. No, God clearly says what? Bring it. Bring it. By the way, Partial obedience doesn't bring partial blessing. If you think, I'll just obey God a little bit, that'll bring me a little bit of blessing. Ah, sorry, doesn't work that way. Partial obedience is total disobedience. Ladies, what if your husband goes on a trip, comes home and says, I was 99% faithful to you when I was gone? That's 100% unfaithfulness, isn't it? <laughs> and delayed obedience is disobedience. James puts it this way. Anyone 
who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So we're to bring the whole tithe. We're to bring the whole tithe. You say, oh, I just don't see how it's going to happen. Let me take you back to Malachi. God says what? Trust me. Trust me. I'm very creative. Very creative. Now, God's whole point in giving is twofold. He means for us, first of all, to see him not only as our creator, but also the gracious giver of all. And secondly, he wants us to recognize his provision and respond in grateful generosity back to him. He desires for us to be like him. He desires for us to be gracious like him. Giving, generous. Now in Israel, you may not have known this, but in Israel there were actually three tithes mandated in the Mosaic law. The first tithe was one-tenth of all, as we've been describing. That's called the Lord's tithe and the storehouse tithe. It was given to the Levites for their service in the, tank, in the temple. You read about it in Leviticus 27 and Numbers chapter 18. There was a second tithe. This was one-tenth of the remaining nine-tenths. It was called the Israelites' tithe. It was set apart and spent on the food and drink of a special sacred meal in Jerusalem in the presence of the Lord your God. Read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and chapter 14. There was a third mandated tithe. This was one-tenth of the remaining eight-tenths balance every year. It was a charity or benevolence tithe. It was for the Levites, the aliens, the orphans, the widows in one's community who had no inheritance. The cumulative effect of those three tithes was to encourage generous, holistic giving in three different areas to those who serve the Lord in the temple, for celebrations before the Lord, and for the poor in their locale. The total tithe... Now, I calculated it at roughly 22%. Our church accountant came up and told me after the last service, it's 27%. Whoa, I said, whoa, really? God was serious about teaching his children to give generously in tithing. To an Israelite, it was not just a 10% deal. Up to 27%. Wow. Isn't that impressive? You think God can make that happen? Yeah, absolutely. Now, number four, when we are to tithe, when we tithe, we are not free to designate it, divide it, or direct it wherever we want. Now, I know people have done that and have told me about this. They said, well, I, I give part of my tithe over here, part of my tithe over here. I said, really? Why? If this is your church, you bring your tithe here. It's that simple. Malachi talks about offerings also, doesn't he? Yes. You see, it's the job of the leaders of the church who direct the affairs of the church. Paul says to Timothy, and in Acts chapter 4, verse 35, the apostles directed the finances of that early church. It's the leaders of the church, your church council, your pastoral staff, the elders, to make sure that the money is distributed where it should be. Offerings in addition. You guys have always been very, very generous. And uh, right now we have work going up on in the Pacific Northwest. And we took special offering for Dale and for Nick. You guys are incredibly generous. And they're very, very thankful, by the way. We'll bring a report for them in just a, a few weeks. So bottom line, God is the one who's behind our financial problems. He's also the one behind our financial blessings. He is sovereign. And once again, here's the promise. He says, trust me in this. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour a blessing so there's no more need. Your whole life. You don't have to worry about the car breaking, the washer breaking, the dryer breaking. He says, I'm going to make sure that everything is taken care of for you. Wow. Wow. Can you think of a better deal than that? Remember, 
We're the ones who determine whether God is behind the burdens or the blessings, the problems or the prosperity. The choice is ours. God says this. I love this in Joshua. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Choose for yourselves this day. Not tomorrow, not next week. Not say, well, I've got to think about this. No, choose for yourselves this day whom you are going to serve. Amen? You excited? You can hardly wait. <laughs> All right. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for, again, your word. We thank you for Haggai and Malachi. Delivers your word faithfully to instruct us, to instruct your people. Lord, help us to be people who are faithful in every area of our life, who trust you, even in the face of incredible uncertainty, that, Lord, that we would search your word to know how we should respond. That we would acknowledge you in all of our ways and not lean on our own understanding. And if we did that, you promised to make our path straight. We thank you this morning for the privilege of being in your family, being your children. We worship you. We acknowledge you. And Lord, as we come to your table, we ask you to search our hearts and reveal to us any way in us that is, um, ought not to be. Things that we should be doing that we're not, things that we're doing that we shouldn't be. And Lord, convict us that we can confess those things to you, repent of them, and come with clean hands to your table. Thank you, Father. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.